Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front, a Band of Brothers podcast. This is officially episode one, titled Kurahi, uh, which we are going to be doing the episodic review of the first episode in the series of Band of Brothers by the same name. Uh, this is Qui-Gon Tim, of course, and joining me is Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you tonight? Well, I was going to yell out Hi-Ho Silver to, to start out my inter- introduction because <laughs> I thought that would be so appropriate for this episode, but I didn't want to blow everybody's speakers out. But hello. <laughs> Hope everybody's doing well. I think it would absolutely have been appropriate. <laughs> uh, you know, we could give you another shot at it if you want. I, well, I, you know, I, I feel like you can't yell that out without wearing Lieutenant Sobel's, one of his giant jackets with like the lamb skin <laughs> be spilling out the huge collar. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of adds a little bit more style to that <laughs> as you're jogging down the road waving a pistol. <laughs> That's right. It, uh, it, it, it certainly contributed to that. So thank you to everyone for, for joining us here. Hopefully uh, you had listened to our episode zero, our introductory episode, so you know all about the podcast and what we're doing and who we are. And hopefully you have had a chance before you're listening to this episode to go back and watch or rewatch if you've already seen uh, Band of Brothers before, uh, catch the, the first episode, Kurahi, and now hopefully you're joining us to kind of get our perspective and our point of view as we talk about the episode a bit, what we liked, what we didn't like, uh, what we thought some of the high points were. And, uh, and of course, the you know, reason why I'm really happy to have Tom joining us is to get some of his perspective, being, uh, being an Army guy, to kind of tell us you know, what maybe some of his experiences are and some of the things that he might know. Give us a little bit of, of, of an inside perspective, if you will, uh, along with the fact that Tom is also a, a, a great podcaster and you know, all-around good guy. We'll, we'll, we'll throw that badge on you, Tom, if that's all right. All lies. <laughs> So, uh, real quick, you know, well, I guess we'll jump right into the episode. Uh, this was uh, this first episode. Currie was written by, uh, of course, Stephen Ambrose, who kind of has a, a perpetual writer's credit across the entire series because this was, in fact, based on his book, as we talked about in the last episode. Uh, Eric Genderson and Tom Hanks also has a writing credit here. Uh, this episode was directed by Phil Alden Robinson. Uh, who is not a name that kind of jumped out at me, but when, when I looked him up, he does have some notable directing credits, uh, which include Some of All Fears, Sneakers, and Field of Dreams, uh, which are all reasonably well-acclaimed films. And uh, I think that he handled this first episode pretty well. I, I totally agree. I th- what struck me, because the last time... I, I thought about it. I, the last time that I watched this episode in earnest, I think I may have watched it a couple times on repeat during college, you know, the History Channel re- repeats it or something. But really, the last time I distinctly remember watching this was when it first aired and I sat down with my dad to watch it in 2001. It blew, mm-hmm. First of all, that blew me away that it's been that long that I, yeah, before I've watched this. Uh, but what what struck me was just the the overall quality of the episode. I mean, you know, for something that's could easily in any other series be a really boring setup show, an hour worth of training and these montages really has some meaningful stuff in it and really 
gives some some solid foundations for threads that are going to carry through all 10 episodes. Oh, yeah. And we definitely see a lot of the primary characters get introduced in this episode and really step up. We kind of see what happens to them, particularly as as they're going through uh, their airborne school and where they start. And, and it's really kind of neat as we go through the entire series to see their individual arcs and where they end up in this. Uh, Tom, what was, can you kind of encapsulate for us this episode just to remind us and ground us a little bit? What was, what was this episode about? I'm going to read everyone the script verbatim and then you will have that, that experience of listening. (laughs) If you're a Star Wars fan, you know, salacious crumb Jabba's little like lizard monkey that laughs that's like what my voice sounds like on recording i feel like so <laughs> i'm just kidding so <laughs> episode one uh introduces us to easy company this is not the easy company of legend that we know now uh, none of their exploits had had happened yet this is easy company in its in its rawest form uh as a bunch of green recruits they're working their way through army airborne school in northern georgia now, on top of the rigors of that training that they're going through, those soldiers have also got to deal with uh, the infamous Lieutenant Herbert, Herbert Sobel, played by none other than David Schwimmer of Friends fame, who's a commander hell-bent on exacting perfection out of Easy Company at every turn. We also meet Lieutenant Richard Dick Winters. Uh, he's introduced as sort of a, a quiet and contemplative foil to Sobel, once they graduate airborne school, and spoiler alert, they, they do manage to graduate, at least most of them, <laughs> Easy Company actually ships out to England to start the long road of preparations for the invasion of Europe, otherwise known as uh, D-Day is probably the, the most common part of that invasion that most folks know. Mm-hmm. And then episode one is going to wrap up as Easy Company embarks on the massive D-Day mission. Literally, the last shot is uh, just a storm of C-47s over the English Channel, you can see the the ships of the invasion down below as Dick Winters hangs out literally the the plane door and takes it all in. That had to have been one hell of a daunting experience. I mean, to, to be up in the air, like you said, pretty much hanging out the door, it's nighttime, and all you can see and hear, aside from the drone of the airplane, is just the anti-aircraft fire that is you know, trying to destroy you. Uh, I, I, I can't, can't imagine that. And one of the best things that this episode does at the, really at the, at the start and the beginning, because this episode starts out sort of current day with easy company finding out that due to weather, they're not going to jump on the night of, uh, June. What is that? Uh, third, I think. June 4th? can't remember. And then it backtracks to the rest of the episode, and then we pick them back up in England toward the end of the episode. But it really shows, does a great job of showing sort of that pent-up anticipation. And this is not like a bunch of teenagers that are ready to go off and, and play Call of Duty or something like Amped Up. These are folks that understand the task that's ahead of them, the danger that's ahead of them. And it just, the director, the cast, they all do a phenomenal job of really conveying the wide range of emotions there. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, what more poignant way to end it than to show 
sort of visually the scale of this operation that they're about to embark on. And then I think as it fades to black, you see the, the classic Eisenhower quote, you know, the eyes of the world are upon you. So mm-hmm. just really, really a picture-perfect episode. And it's just, you know, when you think of it even broader, it, these guys are just a generation removed from World War One, the Great War, where the scale of sheer death and destruction in the very same place that they are jumping into completely destroyed the generation before them. And so, you know, that's got to resonate quite a bit with a lot of them because they probably had fathers and uncles and other relatives uh, who fought in World War One. Many of them probably died. Uh, so you, you have that kind of resonating with them. And then the fact, again, that, like we mentioned in the last episode, that these guys are the first paratroopers. This has never been done before. Uh, this is a completely different type of warfare. And they know that they are parachuting behind enemy lines. And there's no possible way that shit could be good when you're doing that. (laughs) I mean, you are are immediately surrounded by the enemy. The enemy is trying to kill you as you're coming in. And, uh, you know, once you're on the ground, you're then surrounded by the enemy. And, you know, luckily, as as we'll see, and I, I don't want to talk too much about the next episode, but luckily in the next episode... In many cases, the enemy didn't know that they were there, which was a, a great yeah. and wonderful thing for them. Uh, but just this, again, standing at that door and how they left this episode in the end with that last shot is just, it really sets up the rest of the series. Because this that's truly it, standing at the door ready to jump into Europe. And, and that's the beginning of everything. Yeah, and I, I think this is you touch on two points that I want to I don't want to necessarily dive into right yet. But the first, you make a great point about airborne infantry being a totally new concept. They touched on this during the training. Colonel Sink, the unit's commander, uh, talks a little bit about it. Reminds them that airborne infantry is brand new. These are the first guys, but the combination of the, the separation of time between World War One and World War II and the fact that this is a brand new fighting concept, you don't have any kind of uh, institutional knowledge there. Yeah. Right? So Colonel Sink may or may not have been serving in World War One. I, I, I have no idea about his personal history. But your ground combat leaders, Winters, Nixon, uh, Buck, these officers that are jumping out the door with these soldiers, the NCOs, non-commissioned officers who were giving orders to the privates and the privates themselves, these 18, 19, 20-year-olds, mm-hmm. they've got no combat experience None. top to bottom. You know, I, when I deployed to Afghanistan, you know, I had the good fortune of serving alongside folks that had you know, combat experience, some of which had gone all the way back to the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that stuff is invaluable. Uh, you know, and we're not talking about a, a specialized type of fighting here. You know, we're, we're not inventing a new type of combat like these uh, airborne or a new tactic, rather, these like these airborne infantry guys were doing. We're just talking straight, uh, you know, a normal deployment. And it makes all the difference in the world to be able to have that kind of experience. And these guys didn't have that. Yeah. The officers didn't have that. Uh, and, you know, so you've got guys like. 
Dick Winters, these mid twenties, maybe early thirties uh, guys who are, you know, commissioned by virtue of their education, maybe ROTC, OCS, some type of training like that. Yep. And they're having to fill some huge shoes. And not only that, but they're doing it with a tactic that nobody's ever done before. Yeah. So I think that's pretty incredible. It just speaks to the challenge that they faced and, and really the sort of respect that is owed to that entire generation. Oh, absolutely. It, it's, it's a, it was a gutsy thing, uh, especially in this particular application. So all for the, I, I no, I was, I was just going to make a quick joke that, yeah. uh, you know, you get that image of all those C-47s and they're heading off and it just echoed. There's an interview right at the beginning where they're talking about why, you know, nobody volunteers for the airborne infantry at first. Like, who the hell would want to jump out of a damn plane? A perfectly good one at that. <laughs> and then they're like, well, you get an extra 50 bucks a month. I wonder as they're sitting there like, well... That fifty bucks sure seems great now. <laughs> yeah, you can take your fifty bucks Damn and it. shove it right where the sun don't shine. Yeah, exactly. So as you mentioned, the 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 episode starts a little bit more in the future. It starts with these guys uh, essentially ready to board the planes to make their trip, and then it rewinds back to um, these guys being in airborne school. Um, now at the time, these guys were essentially drafted straight into airborne school, right? These guys didn't have basic. This is, this was their basic. You know, I'm not entirely sure. Ordinarily they would have gone through some, uh, basic type of training. So like literally basic combat training, right? Stuff may have been a little bit different there. They may have rolled it all into one modern day. I'll just give you an example if you were to walk into a, a recruiter and volunteer to be an infantryman today, you would ble- you would do your standard basic training, but you would roll straight into your infantry school, sort of your advanced training at mm-hmm. the end of that. I mean, there'd be a small break. You'd have a little graduation ceremony. And then your airborne training would be right after that. And you're doing it all at the same base. These, you know, infantrymen in today's army are doing this all at Fort Banning, Georgia. So they they maybe move barracks <laughs> once right. during that, say, twelve to fifteen weeks. But uh, yeah, so I I think especially under the circumstances here, it would be reasonable to expect that they're doing this in a compact, all in one. Because the U.S. W- certainly wasn't spending a ton of money to ship these guys around yeah. from base to base. Yeah. Yeah, it's that they accelerated the accelerated the process quite a bit. So you've you've seen this episode, the series, quite a number of times, right? I would say three or four times. Okay. In straight runs. Uh, so there's a question I'm going to pose to you, which I'm sure you've thought of because you actually wrote this question in our show notes, and I think it's really good. Um, comparing your most recent watchings to your first watching, what did you see as the differences between those two? There was a huge difference. Simply, I think first and foremost, I appreciated the quality to a certain extent. I was in high school, what was I, a sophomore in 2001? Yeah. So I was a sophomore in 2001 for frame of reference. I graduated high school in 03. And at the time, I, you know, I recognized that this was a high quality show, uh, certainly a high quality portrayal of World War II. I mean, you had uh, 
Saving Private Ryan as a frame of reference mm-hmm. a few years prior to that. Uh, Black Hawk Down, you know, and a, a couple other movies that came out were you know just high quality, sort of modern war movies that you know were near and dear to me. At, but at um, some point, you and I got to talk Black Hawk Down. That is one of my absolute favorite movies. I freaking oh, yeah. love that movie. It's it's all in the grind. <laughs> so, but the quality I, I, the quality jumped out at me. I, I'm not sitting here putting myself out there as some kind of like fine connoisseur of television or anything <laughs> like that. But you know, you watch it and you're like, this is a damn good show. Mm-hmm. And I, I I found myself feeling guilty at the end of the last episode. Because I had owned, I've owned the Blu-ray set of the movie or the the show for a couple years now, and I've not broken it out of the case until mm, now. Okay, and I felt this like feeling of shame, <laughs> like I should write HBO an apology letter. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's quite alright. But then the other side of it, the other the other side of it, sort of unique to my situation was I wasn't in the army when I first watched this through, mm-hmm. and seeing some i i I guess i i see it with a different lens now you know i i've been on both the enlisted side and the officer side and i noticed things that just weren't apparent to me uh when i first watched it you know i'll I'll touch on a, a few of those things as we go through some of the topics but it was neat to have that different perspective now what about you oh i i bet there are a lot of things that you kind of viewed differently as a soldier than you did before that period of time. So yeah, that's, I bet that's gotta be interesting. Um, for me, I'll, I'll say probably the first time I watched it was probably like maybe 2003 or 2004. Um, mm-hmm. so this, uh, the first two episodes premiered on HBO. What was it? September 9th, mm-hmm. 2001. Yeah. Um, so I'm 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 a little older than you, and I was uh, so when nine eleven happened, I was actively working in in public safety, and that was my that was my life for for a few months before you know continuing on in public safety, but doing other things. And so this was like not even on my radar at all for a while. And then I kind of mm-hmm. heard about it, and and obviously it was very highly critically acclaimed, and people that I talked to had watched it and they really enjoyed it. Uh, but it was, it was a while that before I, I got to watch it, uh, simply by function of, of not having HBO. So I think right. maybe the first time that it ended up on some other channel was, was when I first got to watch it. And I don't even know that I remember seeing every single one of the episodes. I think it was one of those things, you know, you turn on a channel and there's something on and you watch it. And mm-hmm. it was probably somewhere in the middle, and I, you know, watched a few episodes of it and said, "Wow, that's really damn good." And then it was probably some period of time later before I finally actually watched the entire series all the way through. I've I've seen it a lot since then, a, a real lot. <laughs> I just I absolutely love it, and I will tell you, I, I watched this. You know, I watched uh, I watched it in December. I watched it probably a month ago. When we were when we first started talking about this, I watched it two weeks ago to prep for us recording this episode, and I watched it. Uh, what time is it? It's about nine thirty. Uh, I watched it about six o'clock this this evening, like straddling dinner. That feeling of guilt is washing back over me. I'm <laughs> starting to type out my letter to HBO now. 
<laughs> I actually had it set up on my iPad in the kitchen. Uh, my <laughs> wife and I are in there making dinner. We're watching it. And then after, and then, you know, pause that we ate dinner. And then afterwards, and I was just, I was, I was kind of good with where I was. I was maybe two thirds of the way through the episode. It was just, just to kind of refresh my memory a little bit before we jumped into this. And, right. and we finish up dinner and we get into the living room. My wife says, are, are we going to finish watching that episode? <laughs> Sure. Why not? <laughs> Why the hell not? Let's put it on. Twist my arm about it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, um, I I love it, and and there are little things, maybe not in every single episode, but certainly as I watch the series, every single time I watch it, there are always little things that I pick up that I don't recall seeing or hearing in any of my previous viewings. And mm-hmm. so that is that's kind of always a, a, a joy with it. And there's so much that goes on with these episodes. The emotions are up and down. There is a, a real great script that they have in this. And I'm actually now starting to watch it with uh, closed captioning on because sometimes oh, there's things that wow. you don't pick up on um, when you're watching it and listening, particularly... If there's a lot of other noise, if there's a battle, if there's something else going on, so it's it's a different experience to catch that. Of course, you're you're not able to pay as much attention to the screen itself, but it does kind of help you focus on uh, a lot of dialogue and such. So, so that's something that I've started doing, and, and I've even been able to pick up some different things from that. I like the closed caption idea. I might start doing that soon. I, I did that. Starting this season with the Star Wars Rebels show, if anybody out there watches that. Yep. And I found that to be tremendously helpful. Not, you know, I, sometimes you hear a character name. There's a great scene in this episode where, I forget the young soldier's name, but he's asked, he's talking to a British soldier that's dressed in German garb. Oh. And he's asking him about a Luger. Ah. And part of the point of the scene is that you can't understand what the British soldier is really saying. Love it. But, um, that's one of those classic moments where I want to go back and watch that scene and see if it, it's even translatable. <laughs> it is. I will tell you, the, the closed captioning of it is is completely verbatim of what the British soldier says. And yeah, that's a great scene. It's a really funny scene just with all of the, 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 the you know jargon and, and, and local dialogue that the British soldier is using. And not only is it funny, but it's also this great representation of at least these two factions of the Allied forces. Yeah. And and the fact that at the soldier level, hey, they can still be friendly and they're still talking, but there's still some differences. Along with the fact that, you know, these guys and in, in through the next several episodes as they're kind of back and forth uh, from uh, the actual fighting and then you know, taking some R&R or, or doing a reset back in the UK where they are living in and occupying these little little British towns and might be a little fraternization with some of the local ladies. <laughs> the locals are providing services. I mean, they're doing their laundry. They're doing all sorts of other things, which is you know, you you can go back to the Romans, and those are the kinds of services that popped up around armies. It's it's so it's just kind of interesting, you know, how they set up as a community and and where they went and how things kind of formed around them, or they on the other side kind of interjected themselves into into some of these places. <laughs> 
Yeah, you get the distinct impression. It's sort of a unique, neat environment to think about because everybody, you get the sense, is rowing in the same direction, so to speak. I mean, the British Isle was sort of uniquely situated amongst the Allies where they had really tasted the boot heel of, of Hitler. You know, we had come in at a point in the war where they had already, you know, felt the the sting of the German army and the Air Force. Mm-hmm. If your image of of the U.S. is at this unified front, you know, after Pearl Harbor, certainly that that was the case. But you just get a different flavor of it on the British Isle. I mean, all these folks are are in it not just to win it, but their very lives depend on it. Yeah. Um, you know, they're and in a lot of cases the. U.S. troops are rolling in and prepping for D-Day, and parts of London are still clearing out rubble from the Blitz. Mm-hmm. And it's just a a neat thing to think about. Uh, you know, not neat like happy, happy, but uh, <laughs> you know, you it's it's a one unified war effort there. Yeah. So let's talk about the absolute train wreck that is uh, Lieutenant turned Captain Sobel. <laughs> I, I will say for, from the outset that we talk about things that are maybe more readily apparent or differences in watching now. I did not really watch Friends back in 2001. I, I saw it on occasion. My parents would have it on TV, but I was not a diehard Friends mm-hmm. uh, fan. So Same here. I wasn't as affected by that wave of popularity in pop culture. So to me, Schwimmer was just a good actor playing in a role you know he filled it well now my wife is a huge friends fan we watch friends all the time and i look back and i 2001 when this episode aired and especially when it filmed friends was at the height of its popularity it had maybe another what three seasons on the air because i think it it lasted until oh four i think so yeah Uh, and so you're talking about this is he's appearing in this show Mid stride, and and I I think of anybody, maybe except for Phoebe, uh, Lisa Lisa Kudrow, you talk about being typecast into a role. But Schwimmer fills the role of Ross so well that going back, it is a little bit weird and jarring to see him in the Sobel role, even though I've I've seen this show several times before. But you know what stood out to me is he plays it so well from top to bottom. From you know the smarminess that he has when he's readily taking credit for for stuff that he has no business taking credit for, to just you know his uh, jackassery, I guess the, the oh, better yeah. way to put it. Yep. Um, you know he it's just fantastic. So it's still it's it's always going to be a little weird to see him in the role. But mm-hmm. anyhow, I, I know what your thoughts were on that. I, you know, it's it's funny to see. I guess when when everyone goes through it, and I certainly want to hear your perspective from going through basic. I I think whenever someone goes through something like basic in the military, or they go through like a, a police academy or a fire academy or something like that, you there are always those instructors who are just perceived to be the total dickheads. They're the hard asses. They're the ones that are riding people all the time. And they just seem absolutely impossible to please. And I I think that there is 
again, from my perspective, I think that there is enough of a role for those people. And I think it's actually a legitimate role uh, because you are, you're part of the experience is to frustrate people. Part of the experience is to try to get people to meet the exacting standards even though you know that in the field they're not going to, but you're still trying to shape that soldier or that police officer or, or, or whatever it is for, for their career and give them a foundation and a respect for uh, decorum and, and the uniform and certain procedural things and, and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. I overall don't mind how Sobel was in most of airborne school because i think Mm -hmm. that there was a place for him now when they started to go further on and he was actually taking the guys into the field doing exercises he is absolutely completely 100 percent freaking inept (laughs) you know the guy can't use a map and compass he had a hard time. I mean, you know, he, he ragged on those guys about jumping. He could barely jump himself, much less land. Oh, yeah. Uh, his, his field tactics, uh, the, he has absolutely no sense for field tactics. What was his quote? Well, the enemy is somewhere over there. Let's go get him now. What? Really? <laughs> They're somewhere over there. Let's go get him now. Come on. Oh, gosh. And, and, and particularly... I think his men could have gotten beyond some of the stuff that happened in airborne school proper. But once they actually got out into doing some of the field training with the guy, that is where they lost all confidence in him and in the possibility that he was going to continue to be their CO going into combat. Uh, these guys wanted nothing to do with it. And obviously the NCOs essentially mutinied. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that that's what it came down to. And, and they mutinied. Their mutiny was not only for themselves, but also on behalf of the soldiers that they were leading. Yeah, I, I think, and, and I guess we could touch on this in a couple of minutes, but uh, I, I think they viewed themselves, they knew the role that they played, right? NCOs play a very special role mm-hmm. in the military, whether you're talking about petty officers in the Navy, NCOs in the Marine Corps or Army. Uh, these are non-commissioned officers. So when you say that, you, you think about an officer as a commission from the president. These folks don't carry a formal commission, but they're entrusted with a whole hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. And the Army calls them the, the backbone of the Army, right? So they are leaned on for a lot of stuff. And I, I think that was a very poignant scene because those NCOs realized that if the privates did what they were doing, you know, very likely they would be in some grave trouble. But certainly the officers aren't necessarily going to step up in that role. So it fell to them, uh, you know, sort of a solemn role, but also one that carried a lot of risk for them. Mm-hmm. I think when I, when I think about Sobel, the tug of war came up in my mind that the army still struggles with to this day which is this this battle between balancing discipline and battle preparedness Mm -hmm. whatever that looks like and the two flow together they're not separate and distinct 
and in my mind, you know, they, they uh, you can't have one without the other. There's, you know, some great quotes out there by folks like Patton on the, the need and importance for just basic discipline. And Sobel, certainly, when you talk about those exacting standards, I mean, he's a son of a bitch. He's, uh, that first scene, he's like, he goes up to Malarkey and he's like, Malarkey, that's slang for bullshit, right? <laughs> he promptly revokes his pass for like a small amount of rust. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you're like, what a dick. And on the other hand, you're like, when, I, I guarantee you that Malarkey didn't have rust on his buttstock after that point. Right. Whether it was a, a small amount or not. And I, I can remember times in my own training one of the worst times ever, and I think anybody that's served in uniform will tell you this, is trying to turn in your weapon to the arms room once you've gotten done with a range or a field exercise oh, yeah. or something like that. Because it's got to be spotless. Mm-hmm. And if the armorer is doing their job right, they're going to reject that that weapon. And especially in the training environment when you've got drill sergeants doing it. We used to have one. He'd put on these like white gloves that were used <laughs> for funeral detail. <laughs> and he just had a small perfectly manicured little pyramid of Q-tips mm-hmm. and he would just take his little gloves and he and this is a hulk of a guy. I mean, he looked like if you peeled his skin back, he had like a terminator skeleton underneath. <laughs> and he would take these little dainty gloves and this Q-tip and just just wiggle it into some nook and cranny you didn't even know existed in mm-hmm. the M16. And he'd pull it out, and it would be black as night. Yep. And he wouldn't say anything. He'd just toss it aside like a little cigarette. But you know what? <laughs> I learned to clean that weapon yeah. inside and out, and I learned to, to not present it until I had done my job to, to get it done like that. And so in some regards, you know, Sobel's tactics have a purpose there, and yeah. they have an effectiveness. I mean, you see Colonel Singh talking to him a couple times about how highly Easy Company is performing. Mm-hmm. But I think you also see some real elements of a toxic leader there. Is yeah. What, you know, yeah. What I'd probably call him. Uh, that, that dickishness just kind of overrides any kind of effectiveness. And I talk about battlefield preparedness because that's what you see the concern become when they get to England. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to just you know focus and nitpick on these boots aren't bloused right or there's a little bit of rust here or dirt there. It's another thing when you talk about trying to prep a unit for actual combat right. and those flaws that you talked about his like inability to read a compass <laughs> amazingly and uh <laughs> desire to cut fences in the english countryside and stuff <laughs> no 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 he did that under perceived orders <laughs> oh yeah major horton was yelling at him. <laughs> but, but you know uh it it becomes a question of safety right and the the, yeah. the struggle that the army and and i would probably guess the same thing for the marine corps has these days is you know there's this perceived slippage in discipline mm-hmm. right and you've got a, a crop of combat veterans out there whose you know opinion is discipline is important right but you know wh- where's your time better spent nitpicking things like a a, a well-made bed or a precisely laid out footlock or something like that mm-hmm. or on actual combat drills the stuff that you're going to be using because you know y- y- when you're on patrol in iraq or afghanistan you- nobody gives a shit how your bed is made right. but at its core that's not really what it's about it's about you know instilling a sense of obedience and attention to detail 
Yep. So that you can, you know, do what's asked of you and look out for the folks beside you. Mm -hmm. So I think at its core, that's what Sobel is trying to get at. He just takes it too far. Yeah. 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 He he absolutely does. I mean, it's, it's important to take care of your weapon, take care of your kit, but yeah, he, he just kind of keeps on extending a little bit um, each and every time. And that tends to lose the respect of a lot of people. And obviously when, he uh, ends up asking Winters to be turning in recommendations for discipline for soldiers who don't require any discipline. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, uh, that is definitely showing you know that something is crossing the line. Oh it's, yeah, it's one thing oh, to yeah. nitpick. It's another thing to make one of your subordinates make some shit up about a bunch of guys who actually didn't do anything wrong just so you can make an example of them. Yeah, and and there was a perfect example of of right and wrong in this episode, or a a perfect foil to this. Toward the beginning of the episode, when he's in the formation and he's dinging or gigging, as they call it, soldiers like malarkey for little infractions, Mm -hmm. he steps out of the formation after like three or four people have sort of, you know, messed up. And he says, due to these men's infractions, everybody's weekend pass is revoked. So that group punishment, right? So if if I get, if I move at the position of attention and and mess up, everybody's got to drop down and do Mm pushups, right? That, that kind of thing can have a really positive effect because it causes, you know, you see a little bit of it in the barracks. Mm -hmm. I I forget what his name is, but he gets, he's like, why'd you blouse your boots? And he was like, check my, check my pants for creases. There's none in there. (laughs) But you're right. I like at its core, it, it causes accountability. But when you start getting into the business of just gigging people to gig them, just to to sort of make a point. And that kind of culminates with winners like fake court martial at the end, or not as fake court martial, but that whole debacle at the end. Sure. That's when you start getting into, you know, well, and it's just real clear territory that Sobel didn't like winners. He didn't like that. The men took to winners and respected him. He could clearly see that. And so essentially from winners promotion forward, he was trying to set winners up. You know, oh, yeah. he, he did it with the uh, with the the spaghetti lunch, and then he did it later <laughs> on with uh, his whole thing in England about oh well, you know, I I ordered you to inspect the latrines and you didn't get it done at this particular time, and well, I I, I called to where you to where you were staying. Oh well, my billeting doesn't have a phone. Well, I sent a runner. I didn't need a runner. And, it, you know, so he constantly was trying to set winners up there, culminating to what was going to be a court-martial, and winners called his bluff on it. That's a really great way to look at it. I had actually never thought of the fact that Sobel tries to get the men to lump winners in with him. Yeah. And that spaghetti dinner is a perfect example of it, where he, he makes him the uh, officer in charge of the mess detail – puts it in his hands to, to fix a special dinner, so to speak, before mm-hmm. <laughs> before a night of relaxation <laughs> and sort of, you know, a, not so not so subtly suggests that he wants spaghetti <laughs> for the dinner and then immediately, you know, makes him run three miles up, three miles down Kurahi. That's, uh, that's not spaghetti, by the way. That's army noodles with ketchup. 
That's yeah, that's right. Coming <laughs> through Italian. <laughs> well, that brings up a good point. So we see quite a bit of easy companies bonding that happens through their training and the eventual lead up to the D-Day invasion. Mm-hmm. What were some significant moments that stood out to you? I think one of the things, and, and you know, I, I know you have it listed here, is uh, when Sobel sent Gordon back up the hill to run and a lot of the other men ended up joining him. And and that is such a, it, it was done very subtly because it wasn't the way that scene was cut. You could almost think, oh, well, they're just cutting to another scene where everyone's running up the hill. But no, that, that was very clearly everyone rallying around Gordon and saying, oh, you know what? If one of our guys has to run Curahee again, screw it. We're all going to run Curahee. And yeah. that was a that was a real big deal. That showed a lot of unity of of that group of guys. And part of that was basically giving the finger the Sobel. Part of that mm-hmm. was, I guess, also kind of related to that, but also essentially no longer accepting people being singled out. Um, they were going to operate as a unit. They were going to be. If someone was going to be disciplined, they were going to be disciplined as a unit. And and there was going to be no more infighting and they were going to handle everything together and they're going to support each other. And moving forward from that point through this episode, we we saw that happen. You know, we, we saw the guys really pulling together to accomplish things. We saw a lot of bonding and uh, it, it was that to me seemed to be a real pivotal moment. Oh, yeah. And I it culminates. That's on a small scale. From what you can see from that quick shot, there's like four or five other soldiers that joined Gordon mm-hmm. on the run up. And for for reference, because it you know it, it happens kind of quickly, and Sobel like dicks with the company so often it's hard to sometimes remember all the individual <laughs> little things. Yeah, but Gordon finishes the. I, is Gordon the one that didn't uh, that drank out of his canteen against orders, and so he makes him go do the six miles again? Or is that a different soldier on the ruck march? That was a different soldier. Um, I can't remember what Gordon's infraction was. See, I'm talking about all Sobel's like running together, and it's happening yep. to me as, <laughs> as we speak. But it really, to me, it culminates. That's a small but really pivotal moment. But it really culminates on the spaghetti run. Mm-hmm. Hashtag spaghetti run, Band of Brothers. <laughs> I love that. Because you see, so as... Sobel busts into the dining facility. He he orders everybody else, and Winters gives this kind of longing look, you know, like, really? As they're leaving. But Winters, at first, you think, stays behind to, to man the, the detail. Mm-hmm. But no sooner do you see all the soldiers kind of puking and stuff like that than they all, in unison, start to sing their motto, which is Blood Upon the Risers, that big cadence that they start belting out. Yep. They drown out Sobel as he's hollering at them. And right at the end of the pack, you see Lieutenant Winters, mm-hmm. uh, who's singing it right along with him as he stares Sobel down as they go up the hill. Yep. And I thought that... You know, Gordon was the start of it. The spaghetti run was was really the culminating point where they're like, you know what? This guy may be a dick to us. He may be a real true toxic asshole, but he's not going to bring us all down. And if we stick together, there's only so much damage he can do. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's that's, I think, what a lot of it came down to. And 
we we saw that kind of continue to happen not only through this episode but through the rest of the series I, this this episode really set up that camaraderie very well for much of the group uh, for, yeah. for the better or the worse of it I mean later in, in, in a few episodes we have the replacements and we see kind mm-hmm. of how the these guys as as veterans now as as combat veterans, how they're treating the replacements as the replacements are coming in and they're kind of reluctant to accept new guys into this. You know, they haven't trained with them. They haven't fought with them. And so that makes for a very different experience for them. So they're going to look at it uh, with kind of a jaded perspective. Oh, totally. And I would just say as a final point that one of my favorite scenes in this entire episode is when they're out training in England Sobel's got them lost again, and the main couple squads are kind of huddled up behind a little group of trees, and all the soldiers are egging Luz on to do his Major Horton impression. <laughs> and so Major Horton, for, for those that didn't pick up on it, Major Horton is what we would call an observer controller. Mm-hmm. So in training environments, these are officers or, or NCOs that float, and they're tasked with literally observing and controlling the training. They guide, they evaluate, uh, they don't really assist, but they're there to help shape the training and evaluate the unit is performing properly. And so Luz, also this guy's a major, so he outranks Captain Sobel, but he belts out that perfect uh, rendition of him. And <laughs> my favorite line is he goes like, that dog ain't going to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and Sobel's scrambling for the wire cutters to cut the fence. Yeah, <laughs> and then the very next scene, Winters is like, "Where the hell is Sobel?" And they come running down the street with his. He's got the pistol up and the lambskin <laughs> jacket on, yelling "Hi ho, Silver!" Just perfect. You cut that goddamn fence and move this unit. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, he's just bewildered. I forget the the officer's name, but like. What in God's name made you cut that that wire? And he's like, oh, I received an order from Major Horton. It's like Major Horton's on leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you just see Sobel's face, like, oh shit. <laughs> well, and I think that that's another thing because this happened before Sobel set up winners with the whole insubordination deal. And I think that this mm-hmm. was one more thing because winners looked good in that exercise because Winters was exactly where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be. And he accomplished his objective. Uh, whereas Sobel was not. And I think this, uh, the, the whole thing that led to the uh, court martial, which never happened between uh, Sobel and Winters was because uh, essentially retribution that, you know, yeah. Sobel was pissed that Winters did this and he accomplished this. And then he found out, well, all right, so my own guys basically set me up. If you know, mm-hmm. if Major Horton wasn't there, it had to have been my own guys who were you know pulling my leg, and they set me up on this, and now I got you know reamed out by my CO, and I got to make good on this. So there was a lot of this that that really pushed Sobel, and you know, fortunately, we eventually saw Colonel Sink very diplomatically get get <laughs> so reassigned. <laughs> I mean it was 
it was one of those, you know, with backhanded compliments and everything saying, you know what, we're going to set up this new jump school for non-paratroopers. And I can't think of a finer man to run, to run that school. <laughs> if, if you had any question, <laughs> I should say, about the accuracy with which the military is portrayed in this series, <laughs> watching that, forget you know how they use the her, how they wear the uniforms, and how they hold rifles, and the accuracy of all that. Mm-hmm. You want a true testament to the accuracy? It's in that scene because that is that happened. That probably happened today to four or five officers across the army. <laughs> I don't that, doubt it. That sort of uh, compliment that's not a compliment, and then it's paired with a demotion sandwich. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, or or the more dangerous version of it is promoting incompetence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you you absolutely can't have them performing the job that they're performing. There's no place to lateral them to. You don't have enough on them to demote them. So screw it. We'll give them a promotion and get them the hell out of here. Make them someone else's problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that was the perfect job to keep him out of combat, but doing, I guess, what he does best, which is, you know, yelling at people and revoking weekend passes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it kind of makes you wonder how uh, yelling at doctors and chaplains at this jump school actually went. I, I just can't imagine. Well, and he didn't last I long didn't in it. I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. And we know he didn't last long in it because later on he ended up uh, running a, a, a logistics unit, right? That's true. So, uh, yeah. So that that, not that jump school did not uh, did not last long for for Captain Sobel. No, no, unfortunately. When that so it brings up a good point, right? We've talked a lot about Sobel, but Winters, as we talked about at the beginning, is sort of set up as the perfect foil for him. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk just a, for a couple minutes about his sort of beginnings as a leader um, he's really got a unique style i would think yeah he does he's one of those you know he's quiet he's contemplative he's respectful he really he reaches into his ncos and and you see that you don't get it too much of a chance to see it here but you you do see it a lot as a series goes on that he he leans a lot on the ncos but he also supports them and they really respect him a lot I can think of no better scene to encapsulate Dick Winters than the the really fantastic shot toward the end as they're boarding the C-47. And what does Captain Winters do as they're loading up? His men are all on the ground. Mm-hmm. You just heard, I think it, I can't remember which soldier it was, but he's complaining about his gear weighing more than he does. And that's yep. accurate. I, th- these paratroopers are jumping in with combat loads that that weigh literally more than they do. Winters goes down the line and personally helps up every man every one of them. before getting on, on board the plane himself. Yep. And the cinematography is he goes down the line and you just see the hands grasp and you know the face-to-face contact. Mm-hmm. That's Dick Winters right there. Yep. The guy that's willing to, to put himself last, his men first, and make sure that they're taken care of in all corners. Uh, especially making sure that they're ready to to go into combat and be you know self reliant and resilient. Mm-hmm. Well, and then likewise, what you see is when it's his turn to board the plane, he gets helped up into yep. the plane by his guys. They you know grab his arms and, and, and haul him up. 
And that absolutely would never have happened to Sobel. Um, <laughs> I think they would have shut the door on him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also like when we get kind of our very brief introduction, which maybe was a little awkward in this episode because you don't quite know exactly where it came from, uh, was when Buck mm-hmm. was introduced. Yeah. And uh, so so Winters is, is kind of driving Buck around the, the, the base. And, uh, and Winters, you know, he doesn't really seriously dress him down, but he, he kind of slaps his buck's wrist a little bit for gambling with the guys. And essentially their, their dialogue culminates in Buck saying, hey, you know what, big deal. I don't know why I'm getting yelled at here because gambling happens. Everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm new here. I was getting a chance to kind of get to know the guys and, and hang out with them a little bit. And Winters says, well... What would happen if you won? And he says, never put yourself in a position to take from these men. And that is an incredible perspective that Winners has of this group of soldiers and his relationship with them as an officer that he will never take from them. He will support them. He will give them every opportunity that he can. He will do whatever he can to accomplish the mission, but keep his men safe. And he will not take from them. And, and those are like really, really important words. It's a great line, great conversation that he has with, with Buck. Yeah. And it it speaks to the uniqueness of the officer enlisted relationship. I mean, there's not there's not really anything like it in the civilian world. I mean, I you know, I've just made the transition, even though I'm still in the reserves. And you know, I work in a law office and it, there's certainly you know, I guess, and I don't even know how to how to quite encapsulate it. But the working relationship between you know lawyers and the paralegals in the office, you know, it has its its certain tone. It's definitely different than you know how the lawyers interact with each other. Mm-hmm. But it it's nothing like you know that officer and enlisted relationship where, especially you think about in World War II, a lot of these guys are draftees or they're coming right off the street in response to help out the war effort Mm -hmm. and in any other circumstance buck might have been at the bar just shooting the shit with some of these guys i mean a lot of them are the same age and they could be buddies on the outside Mm -hmm. but that's not how it is you know when you put on the uniform and you put on uh the rank there's all of a sudden this very formal sort of wall that goes up and you know while you certainly have to develop a relationship i mean that's essential to be able to properly lead folks and show that you care. There's this, there's this gulf there naturally, and you know as much as the army does to try to, you know, foster that and and instill that respect and and whatnot. It's really easy sometimes to to step over the line and forget that there's that uh, that divide there because you'll you'll get especially in a combat situation, you know. You'll get incredibly close with some of these folks, but at the end of the day, you know you're operating in your in a, a particular role, and if the lines get blurred, you know problems can happen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not about like this superiority complex. I'm better than you or anything like that. It's about making sure that that really when the bullets start flying, folks can be effective, do what they're told, not question orders. Uh, and really work as a team. Yeah. So it, it, you know, it's a it's a bizarre thing, but it really you know that 
I remember it, when I was in ROTC, you know, way back when, uh, we did a leadership study and we watched that scene and had to to give our impressions of it and what we thought of both officers mm. and stuff and uh, what we would do. And that scene always stuck with me since then. Uh, it, you know, and I, I would think about it from time to time when I was on active duty uh, and interacting with some of our, our soldiers. So anyhow, it's, it's, you know, 10 seconds, but it's another great example of a really poignant scene. Yeah. Yeah, and it really is. It's a great scene. It is quick. It is. Uh, I, it's kind of one of those blink and you miss it scenes. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it is a little awkward because you kind of don't know exactly where it's coming from. It's a very transitionary thing. Um, I, I'm actually curious to see like a an extended version or uncut version of this because I'm sure they must have had more to it than than just mm-hmm. that but obviously those lines that exchange between winners and buck was so important that they did want to keep that in and they very easily could have cut that entire thing out um but it was really yeah. meaningful it, it does give us kind of a soft introduction to buck but it's real meaningful in terms of winner's perspective and a little bit of insight to his leadership and the respect that he has for uh, the guys under him. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we've talked about that really serious scene, I want to know, <laughs> there's some really, really hilarious. I know we've talked about a few of the funny scenes in here, but uh, the, the show does have some levity in it, despite, you know, the serious topic and whatnot. And this episode in particular had some really funny moments. I wanted to get your take on what you thought were some of the, some of your favorite moments on the funny side. Well, we, we talked about the, the major Horton impression, which uh, is one of those things that I laugh <laughs> still every single time I see the episode because it is yeah. just absolutely hilarious. And the thing is, you can see that happening. Like, it's a timeless thing. You can see something like that happening now, today. You yeah. know, that someone would do an impression like that. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily <laughs> have to be a military setting. It could be anywhere. And it's just damn funny. Um, yeah. and, and then, and what's even funnier is that Sobel totally buys into it and it actually gets him in trouble. <laughs> he does the ridiculous thing he's suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Just, you know, so funny that, that, that they do that. And, and there were other little subtle things, you know, just some of the interactions between the guys that really, it's such a well-written script to me that. You have a very serious and, and somber setting that these guys are in, yet they are still people. They're still humans. It's just like, you know, us hanging out. If, if you and I were hanging out at the bar and, you know, mm-hmm. we might rib each other over something. And it's, sometimes it's just the little comments in passing that that I like. And it gives me a lot of, of, of appreciation for the depth of this and how it was put together. Because it, those are the things that help make it feel real. Uh, if yeah. it was all serious all the time, it would be like, eh, okay, this was the, the series is taking itself too seriously. Uh, you have to have moments of levity and, and sometimes they're going to be a little more heavy handed, like the major Horton impression, or sometimes they're just going to be a little more subtle, you know, just a passing comment between a couple of guys. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. Cause it, I, Banner Brothers does a great job covering what I would call like the private bullshit. So mm-hmm. you know, pri- all these young guys are are privates for the most part, 
the non-NCOs, non-officers. And what do privates do? They they bullshit, mm-hmm. right? They're, you know, 18, 19, 20, they're like, they dick around a lot. And y- you see a lot of that here, whether it's the Luz impression or um, what was it? Uh, what was the line where he's, they're on the, the boat and Joe Torrey is like talking about slitting Hitler's throat. And he's like, they'll, they'll rename Thanksgiving Joe yeah. Torrey day and we'll all come home. <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. Like that's the stuff that happened. And then yeah. the fight breaks out and the two guys are playing cards and they're like, what are they fighting about? Like, <laughs> Oh, he, you know, he said he was Jewish and, and he took offense to Sobel being Jewish. So he's, he's also a Jew. And they're like, sound fighting over Sobel, huh? Real smart. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's, <laughs> just what happens right um i think one of my one of the things that i don't know that i remember or picked up on this the first time i watched this as a high schooler but sobel's doing a footlocker inspection mm. <laughs> he he grabs a bag and he's like over 200 prophylactics he was like how is this soldier supposed to have to sh- the strength to fight and fight the enemy after all this <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's great. That, and he, uh, that one always makes me chuckle. And then later on in that same scene where he holds up the can of peaches, <laughs> can someone tell me what this is? And Nixon's just standing there completely dumbfounded. He's like, it's, it's a can of peaches. <laughs> Lieutenant Nixon thinks this is a can of peaches. No, this is contraband stolen from my mess hall. <laughs> Government property. <laughs> We had, I, and it's funny because it, that stuff, you know, you think it it could only happen in a TV show, but you know, it. I didn't have an experience with a can of peaches, but we're in basic training, and somebody I, I couldn't even see where it was in our formation. They moved, and I guess they slapped a mosquito, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, the drill sergeant, of course, sees it mm-hmm. because they see everything, <laughs> and. Demands to know why the soldier destroyed U.S. Army property. That because this mosquito was flying around a U.S. Army base, it was uh, it was U.S. Army property. And we ended up drawing weapons from the arms room, and we had to march up. The soldier had to put this mosquito on a napkin, and we had to. Uh, somebody got an entrenching tool. We had a military oh funeral for gosh. the mosquito. Oh, that's we all lined up like blazing hot. <laughs> You know, <laughs> South Carolina in August, and dug a damn uh, you know grave for this mosquito and laid it to rest. Um, wow! So anyway, yeah, like that's that's the kind of attention to detail that this show has because it just captures the little stuff. So when I, I talk about really being appreciative of the the accuracy with which it it portrays the military, it's it's the little stuff like sure, that. Sure. Well, and in that instance, you have to appreciate the imagination of the drill sergeant to really bust guys. You've got to be if you're doing that job. with something like that. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. So. I, I, I have some some pretty. I, I've taught in a lot of police academies. I've got some pretty good police academy stories too. But oh, that's, that's sure. for another time. <laughs> you, you also you mentioned before something that I actually never picked up on until you sent out a tweet about it earlier today. Oh and yeah. And that is uh, Sobel's wardrobe. <laughs> yes. 
how could you how could you not appreciate it it's it's fantastic <laughs> so i mean what so earlier in the show he has kind of a, a like a just a standard leather jacket and then what later in the show when they're in england it's a little bit colder and he has that wool lines jacket and like the guy just stands out just like this <laughs> obscene douchebaggery <laughs> That's a good way to you know, put it. He just looks like a du- he's an officer like the rest of them, but he just looks like a douchebag yeah, yeah. somehow. You know, and the thing is, if it were a colonel standing there wearing that, you wouldn't bat an eye at it. But it's it's a captain who's doing maneuvers with his squad, and he's still wearing that, and that's just it. It yep. just completely stands out obscenely. <laughs> the modern equivalent, if if anybody out there listening served in the army i don't think that the marine corps manufactures anything like this for their soldiers but the army has this fleece jacket Mm -hmm. and before nowadays it's it's colored a little more like od green so at least it blends with the uniform it still sticks out but before when we had the army combat uniform the sort of grandma's couch looking pattern Mm -hmm. the fleece jacket which you can now buy i think on american apparel or one of these like (laughs) hipster yeah like seven hundred dollars, but it was this greenish like color that didn't match anything, and it just stuck out. But you know, it was a warm jacket, so from time to time, people would wear it. And I just remember in in the field environment when you would see that it was like the modern day Captain Sobel. All you needed was like the soldier holding a pistol and yelling "Hi ho, silver," and it would have been picture perfect. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a it's a great use of uh you know the visual medium to portray the difference between sobel and the rest of the men i mean winters nixon they're all dressed the same when they're around the soldiers for the most part Mm -hmm. uh with some very subtle differences and consistently again and again you see sobel different whether it's that light leather jacket or that one with the lamb skin or lamb for like puffing out of the collar um you know, they, visually, he's he's represented as just different than the rest of the soldiers, and I think that's a just a genius way to portray it. Oh, it really is because that's that's definitely his personality. He doesn't want to be lumped in with the guys. He wants to be no. standing out. He he wants to be seen differently and portrayed differently, and it obviously comes off as being uh, arrogant to say the least. Um, you know, kind of almost elitist and and. You know, he, he wants to have that recognition. He wants to be standing out. And unfortunately, his uh, lack of orienteering skills definitely made him outstanding in his field. <laughs> or someone else's field, for that matter. Yeah. I will say he fits with the stereotype, generally, of Army lieutenants, which is lost and confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would say he definitely accomplished that. So toward the end There's of a, oh go ahead. No, I was going to say we had a picture up in my last office. It was a picture of a single corn stalk. The rest of the corn field was gone, and there was a sign up beside this single corn stalk that said "Corn Maze for Second Lieutenants," <laughs> and that's what I think of when I think of Sobel. That's fantastic. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. That's funny. So toward the end of this episode, we see these guys really getting ready for D-Day. And 
so it kind of catches back up to around that time frame that we saw at the very beginning of the episode where these guys are basically waiting for the orders to go. You know, they, they, they're, you know, what, what we certainly know of in the grander context was they'd get called to prepare. They'd get told to stand down because of weather. And, you know, there were so many units uh, that were waiting in England for that go uh, order. It's some of which actually, you know, they got on the boats and they got part way across the channel and then they were called back. And this happened mm-hmm. several times in these days leading up because there was absolutely horrible weather uh, in that area. Not only hor- not only bad weather for the boats, bad weather to fly, bad weather to give appropriate air cover. Um, yet their window is very narrow because they needed to catch a high enough tide to make the landing uh, at the beaches even possible. Uh, otherwise the tide would have been too low and they, they would not have been able to make it. They would have had to wait basically another moon cycle for that to happen. And they, they, they needed to go. They wanted to end this war uh, very clearly. So these guys were basically going through that and they kind of didn't show that whole picture, but they showed these guys sitting around watching a movie and they showed some other uh, interactions. We had, um, Oh gosh, whose uh, whose brother got killed. Guaniers. Yeah, so we saw Guaniers, uh well, heard of his brother getting killed, and this actually came by way of another soldier whose wife knew about it and wrote to him about it, and Guarnier still hadn't received any notice. And he kind of accidentally uh, uh, finds that letter, sees that his brother was killed, and you can see he's kind of he's not having an easy time processing it. He he puts up a really good wall and mm-hmm. says, "I, you know, I don't feel bad for me, feel bad for my mom." kind yeah. of thing, but you know, he's still now the gravity of what he is facing and what the rest of the guys are facing becomes a little bit more real to him, I think. In in that moment. Yeah. Um you mentioned yeah. the year so these guys are out uh, essentially on the tarmac getting all their gear assembled, uh, their their weapons, their survival kit, their everything and how they're carrying this stuff, which is everything from backpacks to leg bags to things strapped across their chest to, uh, I, I mean, how their their bayonets are, are uh, uh, banded to their the cuffs of their sleeves uh, on their forearms. I mean, the, these guys are... are carrying everything they possibly can uh, up to and including chocolate and cigarettes. It speaks to the uniqueness of that type, that tactic. These guys have to go in, not just behind enemy lines, but they got to carry everything with them potentially for an extended stay. Mm -hmm. And you see the sort of scale of what they're being asked to do as they do the mission briefing. First of all, it's amazing that the, you know, accurate portrayal of control over information that exists. Mm -hmm. You think about this massive military operation and granted, you don't have stuff like Facebook or Twitter, uh, Instagram at the time, but there were, there was a real danger that these plans would leak out either to spies, Mm -hmm. you know, soldiers just talking about the upcoming plans and the fact that they were able to keep 
most of this stuff under wraps. And really, they, they had the Germans fooled about where the Allied force was actually going to land mm-hmm. for the most part. And I, I, that's just consistently amazing to me. And so you see, I mean, there's a great scene where Winners and another lieutenant are kind of meeting up in a tent. And they're, they've surmised that they're hitting Normandy based on these training jumps that they're doing yeah. in the azimuth and, and direction of the, the test jumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like phenomenal. I mean, I, you know, you, you think of winners like, Hey, this has got to be a guy that's in the know. He's an officer <laughs> and he's commanding troops, right? No, yeah. he's figuring it out like everybody else. Right. Cause that's how compartmentalized this information is. You think about Poe Dameron in the last Jedi whining about not knowing where they're going. You, you feel a little less, you know, bad for yeah. him, <laughs> but um, that's another podcast, I suppose. But, you know the the big thing for me is you see what easy company is tasked with with jumping in and they've got to take on they they're going to Carentan so a french town mm-hmm. and their job is to link utah and omaha beaches omaha is the beach that you see uh tom hanks and the rest of the crew land on in saving private ryan mm-hmm. those are the two american beaches two of the most bloody beaches in in the entire invasion and the 101st job is to link those two easy company is targeting a german garrison in a little town saint saint maria glace i might have the name wrong i believe that's it but they've got a they've got to jump behind enemy lines at night they've got to find their way and orient themselves to to the town to a fortified enemy that probably at least has some idea that they're coming i mean c-47s are not exactly stealth bombers right so uh (laughs) you know the the germans are going to have some inkling that a bunch of enemy troops are somewhere in the area that's a heady task and you see it on the faces of a lot of the soldiers hell you you just brought up one ear you saw it on his face i mean he's like struggling to deal with that uh sort of the pent-up emotions about getting their their you know first jump day scrub because of weather mm-hmm. and then you know he gets he gets the news and his first words are like where the hell is monte casino right so anyhow it's just you know incredible what they're being asked to do so. oh yeah yeah it's it's a hell of a thing so I, that's pretty much where we wrap up and we talked about you know winners uh, uh briefing the guys and getting them loaded up on the plane and and then as they're flying uh, uh close to their jump point middle of the night anti-aircraft fire winners is ready to go out the door and and that's basically where it gets cut on us uh for the episode so is there anything else tom that you want to that you want to mention about this episode the only other thing we you touched on it briefly but winners court-martial or the court-martial that never was that before when i watched this show for the first time obviously i was not in the army i was also not a jag officer Mm -hmm. or an attorney and so i was like court-martial that sounds cool. That's probably like a few good men or something. Now I look at it, and it's like what what winners did is hilarious, you know, beyond what it was at the time. Because <laughs> think about it, right? So the hundred and first Easy Company is 
at this temporary location, their their objective and their attention is solely focused on the war effort mm-hmm. and getting ready for D-Day. They don't have prosecutors set up. They don't no. have a mechanism with military judges. I get, this is 1944, so this is pre-Uniform Code of Military Justice. Mm-hmm. The, the administration of military justice was different yeah. at the time. But still – Easy Company, the 101st, did not have any kind of mechanism to set up or do a court-martial at the time, much less figure out how to even charge somebody formally. And so without talking to anybody about it, Sobel just decides to go to the poker table himself and uh, you know lay down his cards against winners, the, the, who's like the epitome of a poker face. I mean, he's like a walking poker face. And it's just so awesome to watch him demand a trial by court martial. Oh yeah! And you see, so we'll sit back, and he's like, "Oh shit!" Because <laughs> he tries, he tries to go at him. He's like, "Dick, you don't even take, you don't even go off base yeah. during the weekend. Just take your punishment like a man." Mm-hmm. And Dick's like, "You know what? F you." Yep. And you know, can, can, I just imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Hang on one second. Which made it oh, even funnier because he actually took the pen out of Sobel's hand to sign the freaking <laughs> paper. I mean, that that gutsy that Winters just yeah. totally called his bluff on it. And, you know, and, Winters ended up getting mildly spanked, uh, you know, probably by, by Colonel Sink, but it clearly yeah. didn't last too yeah. long. And obviously once... Uh, Sobel got reassigned. Then, um, that magically goes. Yeah. Away. Then, then Winters was was back to his previous duty. Well, I you know I have had a few clients during my time as a military defense counsel where I've I've told them to uh, go demand a trial by court martial, and there is no more pleasing thing than to have that discussion. And you effectively, they're like an artillery round. You load them up; they're like ready to go. And you don't do this flippantly, right? You're doing it because there's there's some value to their case, or the government has really overreached, or, mm-hmm. or they pulled a Sobel. Yeah. We'll call it they pulled a Sobel. Mm-hmm. And you just fire them off into the ether, and you know that they're about to go take their commander's pen. Like, can I see your pen for a second, <laughs> sir? And then mark that same thing down. I, I, I had about four or five clients that did that, and it was just one of the absolute highlights of that job, just being that stick right in the spokes. Oh, so, yeah. anyways, that's that's the only other thing I wanted to add. Hey, it's it's always satisfying to challenge bullshit and call people out on it, and, and I yeah, <laughs> I can right. only imagine how that feeling was for you because I mean I'm, I'm sure that the, the soldier who you were counseling was scared shitless. But you know, by the time we got to that point, you know, we were I think they were comfortable with it because you get a lot of them that'll you get a lot of soldiers that would be fired up like they think some egregious thing has happened to yeah. them. And really, you're just like, just take your punishment and go. They, they got you dead to rights. Yeah. But, you know, when you selectively use it like that, I'll say that the five or six times that I did it, not a single one of those went to an actual court martial. You know, so you're able to call the bluff and that's all the more pleasing. That's good. That's the hey, that's good to hear. Well, so uh, we hope that everyone enjoyed our first episode of our first official episode of Dispatches from the Front covering Band of Brothers. Uh, Our next episode, episode two, is going to be uh, covering Day of Days, which, of course, is the second episode of Band of Brothers. So uh, once you get done listening to this, 
make sure that you set some time aside to watch Day of Days and join us for episode two. In the meantime, uh, we definitely want to hear from you, so please send us some feedback. You can get us by way of email, uh, dispatches at randomchatter.com. And uh, certainly for anyone who is in our Discord community, you can hit Tom and I up uh, right in Discord. We have a, a channel set aside for it there uh, for folks who are members. There is a Dispatches from the Front channel. Uh, or even if you're not a member, you can join us in the public lobby and uh, we can talk about it there too. You can also find us on Twitter. Random Chatter, you can find at Random Chatter. You can also find me at Thomas L. That's the letter L. Harper, H-A-R-P-E-R. And Tim, where they where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. And you can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com. Randomchatter.com, great place to go uh, to kind of keep up on all of our shows. We have some new shows that have just uh, joined the network or started up with the network. We also have a few more shows that over the course of the next month or so are going to be starting up. So we are really excited about a lot of the changes and new stuff we have going on with the network. Uh, I think just yesterday or the day before we posted a new poll. Uh, we usually have a poll up on the website. Sometimes just kind of, you know, random stuff to participate in. Uh, this particular poll is actually pretty meaningful to us because we want to know what kind of show length our listeners like across the network. So, uh, you know, do you like a half hour show, an hour long show, hour and a half uh, maybe you don't care so long as we're continuing to be entertaining and covering the content. Uh, so please head over to randomchatter.com. The poll comes right up on that front page and, uh, you know, click on whatever answer you have, whatever you need to and, uh, and submit that and, and let us know. So that, that stuff is real helpful to us. Uh, also spreading the word and supporting us. Word of mouth is really the most effective way for podcasts to gain in popularity and, and to grow. Uh, a lot of us tend to gravitate toward uh, like-minded people and people who enjoy a lot of the same things. Our friends, maybe some family, maybe some coworkers happen to like things. So please spread the word and support us, um, both about the entire Random Chatter Network. And we have kind of something for everyone across the network. But certainly for uh, our little podcast here, Dispatches from the Front, we are not a perpetual podcast. Uh, this is kind of a limited series. We're only going as long as uh, Band of Brothers did, which is 10 episodes. So we're only going to be around for a limited period of time. And obviously we would like to get listeners in as soon as we possibly can and, and get them on board with us. Uh, word of mouth has been great so far. We've had a lot of people excited about this show uh, and, and excited about kind of the opportunity that we're providing for folks to go back and, and re-watch uh, Band of Brothers, or in some cases, watch it for the first time. So that's been really cool to, to get some great interaction with folks to, to talk about that. Uh, it also helps to leave us some reviews on uh, places like iTunes and Google Play, wherever it is that you get your podcast from. Click on all the stars. Take some time to write in a sentence or two and kind of tell people why you like us and what you enjoy about the show. Uh, we also appreciate some financial support. You can head over to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. And that is where you can throw us a bit of money. Uh, that Any funds that come in through there uh, basically help to support the entire network. As I mentioned, we are growing by leaps and bounds. A lot of new shows. Uh, we have infrastructure costs. We have 
web hosting fees. We have data storage fees. We have other costs that we have to cover that, you know, just like a lot of organizations do. Uh, otherwise, the money comes out of our pockets to basically support the network. We appreciate anything that you can give. Uh, the minimum is a dollar a month, which doesn't sound like much, but that is a huge help to us. Uh, you know, we're, we're essentially looking at the concept of crowdsourcing. If you can put in a dollar a month and someone else can put it in and someone else can put it in, that $12 a year gets amplified over and over and over again. And it definitely helps us to cover costs and keep the lights on around here so we can continue providing some what we hopefully think is great content uh, out to everyone. Serenumchatter.com. And we can. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say we can all help chip in so that Tim can achieve his dream of wearing a Captain Sobel leather jacket while he does a Band of Brothers podcast. Exactly. And that, that <laughs> truly is a, a dream of mine. I'm, I'm not sure how Tom knew that. Um, he's somehow tapping into my yeah. deepest, darkest dreams, and that's a little scary. <laughs> uh, again, randomchatter.com slash Patreon. You head over there. Take a look at, at what we have. Uh, with everything that you contribute to us, we give back to you. So just that dollar a month uh, gets you full access to our Discord channel that I, or our Discord community that I mentioned earlier. Um, if you contribute $5, $10, a month, you get uh, access to uh, early releases of episodes, premium content that no one else gets access to. Um, things like Random Chatter Theater, which we just started this week, which is basically kind of like Mystery Science Theater 3000, where we're able to stream something out to you and you have uh, you know, a, a bunch of idiots like me sitting around and giving kind of some voiceover commentary to what's going on. Sometimes it's goofy stuff like that. Uh, pretty soon we're actually, for those of you who are Star Wars fans, and if you couldn't tell, Tom and I are, uh, we're actually going to be doing a review of the Mortis trilogy from uh, from the Clone Wars that way. I think that's going to be a lot of fun, pretty insightful. I'm excited to go back and, and watch that again. Uh, so, you know, whatever floats your boat, we're going to be doing a lot of things from movies to TV shows to movie trailers we did this week, all sorts of different things. Uh, and once again, you can join us in Discord, randomchatter.com slash Discord. That will get you into our public lobby, which is where a lot of discussion happens with our hosts and a lot of other listeners. And if you want to get into the full Discord community, that's just that dollar a month through Patreon. So that's all I have. Tim, you tossed me the one really discriminatory part. I talk a little bit about being a lawyer <laughs> and then you saddle me with this whole disclaimer. Business. I don't know what you're talking about. Blindsided me. <sighs> For those of you that are listening, I have the distinct pleasure of, of giving you guys a little disclaimer <laughs> that dispatches from the front is not endorsed by home box office incorporated. That's HBO to HBO. You know, the, the lay person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and obviously the, the podcast is inter, uh, intended for entertainment purposes only. The names, the references to Band of Brothers, those are all registered trademarks and or copyrights of, of HBO uh, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with the HBO, with HBO, the HBO, I guess. It's like the <laughs> Facebook. The Facebook, the Twitters. 
And I'll just toss this in there. I used to do this when I was on active duty, but you know we're also not affiliated with the Department of Defense or the the U.S. Army in any way. <laughs> All original content of dispatches from the front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. So now that you've given me that wonderful, like very lawyer esque thing, uh, you know I'm I'm prepared for whatever other punishment you can throw my way, Tim. Uh, that was really good, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. Well, with that, folks, um, catch us in uh, about two weeks for Day of Days. Thanks again for joining us at uh, Dispatches from the Front. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.